This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. So let's start in our Bibles, which is where we should always start. It's really important to me, but also because of the power of Holy Scripture, it's really important that you see this yourself. You, just, you have to know that I don't make this up. I simply try to read and help us understand what it is that God's Word is saying to us. So we'll start in John's Gospel, chapter 5, at verse 17. Verse 17 of John's Gospel, chapter 5. Follow along there as I read. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them <coughs> life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you heard it at the end. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. So how does Jesus give life? Here, to start understanding that, what Jesus is saying here, we have to see that we've dropped into the middle of a conversation. So you know that, you know we've dropped in the middle, because where we started reading, it says, but Jesus answered them. So who was he answering and, and what were they asking? He was being confronted by leaders from the religious establishment, and their problem was that he had miraculously healed a man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. And so you say, that sounds good. What, what could be wrong with that? What's the problem? And the problem for some of these people was that he had done that on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is given for rest, and in, in the minds of these people, Jesus had the audacity to do something like heal, which they defined as work on the day which was supposed to be for rest. So why is that such a big deal? One group says you can't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus does it anyway. Why do they have to challenge him? Why can't they just let him do him and they can do them? Because this isn't really about healing. It's a little bit about healing, but it's about how they see the world. 
It's about who they think God is. And really for them, it's, it's about what they thought life was all about. So to the leadership of first century Jerusalem, God was demanding and cruel and therefore they were afraid that he was easily irritated and if they crossed him, he would pounce on them. And so what that led to them doing was making rule after rule to make sure in no way did they do anything that they thought might upset God. So they would take God's, what God had said in the Old Testament, the law, and then they would basically ask, what is the strictest way that we can possibly interpret this for fear that if we cross him, God will be angry with us? And from there, they would kind of build out an elaborate system of doing everything in absolute strict obedience to God, but not out of a desire to please him or worship him, out of a misunderstanding of who he truly was. So they had hundreds of these little rules. And the biggest problem with the rules, the biggest of all the problems, was they elevated their own rules to the level of holy scripture. So they said, what God has said and our rules are basically one in the same. And for the Sabbath, that meant that they took God saying, keep the Sabbath as, as a special day of rest, which he said, but he gave it as a gift. And instead of just thanking him for that and kind of pausing and saying, it's so great that we don't have to work every day, that God has made it so that we can rest and worship him. What they did is they began to say, how can we make this a burden on people? How, what is the strictest way we can interpret it? So, so instead of just saying what a great gift rest is, they would say, well, what does it mean to rest? And we have to walk around. So how many steps can you take before you're working, not resting in a given day? If you help an injured animal... Does that count as labor? You know what? It probably should. It should just count as labor. You can't help even an injured animal, a person. You can't help anybody do anything because that's labor. You can't cook or even pluck a piece of fruit on the Sabbath because then you're not at rest. And all of this, remember, is just built on the idea that God's angry. His ways are meant to be a burden to us. And that's their life view. That God is waiting for you to trip up. And when you do, he's going to make things miserable for you. So their whole life is just about avoiding the misery of being confronted by God. Have you ever thought that way about God, though? That he's just waiting for you to trip up? I have. I have a lot is, is, is your view of God sometimes that God is there just to make things harder for you? In fact, I did the math just yesterday. I think still at my age, I have spent well over half my life thinking that that's who God was. I was a Christian, and I think I often thought that. Maybe I knew better, maybe I wouldn't have said it out loud. But even as a Christian, I thought that sometimes. I, I remember going for this walk one time. We used to live in an apartment, but it, was, it, it butted up against this, this beautiful lake when we lived in Colorado. And I was praying, and, and I was confessing sin to God, and, and, and I started t 
to say something to God like, I really don't want to struggle with this sin anymore because I know that you're so angry with me over it and, and, and I feel like such a failure and such a loser and, and I just can't handle it. And I know if I do this, things are just gonna keep going poorly for me. And in, in my heart, what I'm, what I'm wondering is how long before God is just so fed up with me that he rejects me? How long before God just says, enough of you? And then I remembered Romans 5, 8. On this walk, I remember where I was. It was by this lake in this neighborhood and I remember where I was and I remember Romans 5, 8 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I was on this walk and God just hit me with it. He's not out to get me. It's actually just the opposite of that. And I, I remember it like yesterday. It's like 15 years ago now. Just this sense of overwhelming peace and joy and comfort. And I would say rest. Like there was just tension in my body and it just melted down into the pavement that I was walking on. I was a sinner and Christ died for me. God knew I was unrighteous. That's why he sent Jesus to be my righteousness because I could never have it on my own. I needed his righteousness. I had my view of God all wrong. And here's what these Pharisees couldn't see in this conversation with Jesus. God's the total opposite of everything that they assumed he was. He has for us not a life of anger and burden and guilt, but of joy and peace and true rest to the point that where he is, where God is, there is freedom. Where God is, there is not restraint. Where God is, there are not rules. Where God is, there is freedom and unending pleasure. Psalm 1611 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, God is not quick-tempered. The Bible actually said he's slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. First John says his commands are not burdensome, they are life-giving. And when Jesus began to tell them, these people who had confronted him, an angry sort of mob, that he came into the world to bring the good news of that, that God was not angry, that God was not a burden, that God, was free, was, God came to give freedom. When he began to show people who God really was, that he wasn't hard, that he wasn't at a distance, that he'd actually come near to them. In Jesus, he could be seen and he could be touched and he could be heard because Jesus was God in the flesh. These religious zealots couldn't handle it. Their whole life view was being turned upside down or being confronted. And so what it says is they sought to kill him. And here's what all this is leading toward. Jesus isn't just offering an alternative. This isn't just, well, you have your way of understanding and here's something else to consider. He's saying, if you keep thinking this way, this is what he says, it will lead you to death. But if you come to him and follow him, 
he will lead you to, and he will give you life. And if, and if you're thinking that's a stretch, just really, I mean, like, like life, is there anything more precious? Is there anything more important than life? These religious leaders did not understand it to be a stretch that Jesus was saying at all. They were taking it so seriously that they were seeking to kill him. He was promising to give like they were seeking to end his. Yeah, he was breaking their Sabbath rules. They were upset about that. But they knew that he was saying more. They heard him claiming to bring people to God and and claiming, this is what it says, to be equal with God, to be God himself. And and look at where Jesus takes that. So they say, well, you're claiming to be equal with God. And and he doesn't refute that. In no way does Jesus say, well, he he leans into that. So look at verse 19. Look down at your Bible in verse 19. And what he does here, I'm going to kind of break this down. Because this is a bit of a confusing section. At least it was to me at first. So he, he begins making these connections between what he's doing And what God the Father is doing, and he's saying, we're working together. So verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Then the most important part, this is the most important part, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So their partnership is not loose. It's not based on some shared goals or a little bit of mutual self-interest. Look at the word there. Whatever, whatever the father does, That's what the son does also. So the father and the son are a union, perfectly together, perfectly one, working together. And you see that because their connection also flows in the other direction. So just just to kind of reiterate that, look at verse 22. So the, the son's doing all that the father shows him to do, but verse 22, for the father judges no one. But he has given all judgment to the son. So now the son takes the lead. So this took me a little while to understand. If you're wondering, how can it be that the father has given all judgment to the son in verse 22, but we just read in verse 19 that the son does nothing on his own but what he sees the father doing, how does that fit together? Here's what I think is happening. I think verse 22 means, and, and look, look at your Bible when you see this, because I'm, I'm not going to insert some words into the Bible. I'm going to insert some words to clarify the Bible. So look at verse 22. I think this is what it means. For the Father judges no one by himself. If you just kind of insert the words by himself in there, I think it kind of opens this up for us. So the Father judges no one by himself, but has given all judgment to the Son, meaning that the criteria for judgment is now the son. Or another way of saying that is you and I are judged, and we are judged, you and I are judged by what we think of the son. Our relationship to the son is now the basis for judgment. And the next two verses back back that up. If that's the interpretation, the next two verses back that up. So 23 says, All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And then the reverse. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. So when you honor, here's what this is saying. When you honor Jesus, you honor God. When you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God. And this is what seals it. If anybody is wondering, if if anybody's in here wondering, 
whether Jesus really means to insert himself to all of this, verse 24 will leave absolutely no doubt. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And here's judgment of freedom. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from life to death, from, from death to life. So believing in Jesus brings you from death to life eternal. And this is point, this is, so this is a conversation and pointed at the Pharisees, but let's not make the mistake of thinking that, that you or I will necessarily be any different. God in the flesh was standing right in front of them, telling them they had missed it, saying there is so much more to God and of God than your rules. Th- these rules are just going to lead you to death. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you life, but they couldn't hear it. Folks, let's, let's not make the same mistake. Let's choose Jesus and have life. That's what you get when you choose Jesus. Uh, I had just turned 17 years old when I heard a, a friend tell a high school gym full of us, his peers, the good news about Jesus. So f- first of all, I went to a very large high school. We had a very large gymnasium. Can you imagine the courage that it took one 17-year-old to tell hundreds, if not a thousand other people, 15 to 18 years old, about Jesus. And at that point in my life, there, there were some things that had recently happened over the previous year or two, some, some choices I had made, but, but even more than those individual choices, there was just a trajectory, kind of a direction that my life seemed to be taking and, and here was the, this is sort of the sticking point for me. I didn't like the direction that my life was going, but I somehow felt absolutely powerless to do anything different. I just felt like I couldn't do what I wanted to do in my life. I had this sense that I really didn't want to be heading the way I was heading but I didn't know how to do anything else. I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to change or shift in any way. And what had happened up to that is I'd made some, some new friends and uh, a bunch of them were Christians. And so they were inviting me to come over for Bible study and they were talking about hope in Jesus and, and life in Jesus. And the trouble was, what, what I thought I knew is I thought, they, I thought I knew what they were talking about. So when I walked into the gym... I wasn't really interested in what Jeff had to say. I was just going because that's what friends of mine were doing on a Friday night. But as I sat there, as you face the stage, left side, about two-thirds of the way up, I might be able to get you within three or four bleacher seats of where I was sitting on that night because I remember it so well. What we heard is that Jesus can give life because he takes our place in death. And that works because he has two natures in his one being. He's the holy God, so he never sinned, and therefore he didn't deserve death because death is the punishment for sin. But Jesus is also fully human, so he could stand in for us. He could take our place Your place and my place 
should be under judgment. But if we give ourselves to Jesus and believe in him, instead of judgment, we get reward. We get eternal life with God. And that's what I heard, and that's what struck me. And it wasn't me that changed the direction of my life. My life was so different from those one 10 minutes to the next that I was an entirely new person. And now I've just kind of put some theological language around that. I walked into the gym dead and I walked out alive. I walked into the gym, what the Bible calls an old man, not age-wise, but the Bible calls you an old man. And I walked out a new man. I was one kind of decaying creation and I walked out a new creation. And I didn't do that at all on my own. I had no idea how to even begin that. I knew it needed to happen. I just didn't know how to begin it. But I gave my life to Jesus and he gave me his life in return. And he can do the same thing for you. I skipped over two verses earlier. Verse 20 says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What are the greater works? What are the greater works? This is an Easter question. It's the resurrection. The father will raise Jesus from the dead and after that, the father will raise anybody who believes in Jesus from the dead. Verse 21 for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to him who he will. That verse right there, 21, shows that the Father and the Son are working together. They're doing this together. It's the same thing that Jesus said back in verse 17. My Father, my father is working till now, and I'm working. He's not saying the Father has stopped working. He's saying the Father and I are doing this together. And what are they doing? They're bringing people from death to life. They're opening people's eyes to see that God's not far away. God's not angry. He's near to anybody who calls out to him. He's not waiting to pounce on you. He's waiting to embrace you. Like he was to Jesus, God is a good father and he calls anybody who comes to him his child. And children aren't afraid of good fathers when they come close. They don't hope to go unnoticed. They don't find ways of avoiding their father. They want his attention and they want his affection. So I'm by no means a perfect dad. But I, I hope I'm a good one. And here is probably the best gauge that I can have for myself. If, as I, am I doing well as a father? When I come home, are my children happy that I've come to them, that I've come home to them? And when they have exciting things, hard things, things that they are, uh, want me, do they want me to see them? And so nothing gives me greater joy as a dad than when my, my children say, Dad, watch me do this. Dad, watch me do this. Dad, guess what happened to me? And, and they want to tell me something. God's a good father. We should, want, we, should, we should know that he loves for us to say, I want to be close to you. Watch me do this. Come to me. And, and when we mess up, and we will, he delights for us to come and say, I have sinned again. Will you give me grace? And he will always say, yes, of course.
So now that's how. That's how Jesus gives life. Let me just ask you one more question. I told you I was going to ask this earlier. What kind of life does Jesus give? So if Jesus gives life, what, what kind of life is it? Uh, another way of asking that is to hear Jesus say uh, a few chapters from now, I, I came that they ha- may have life and have it abundantly or, or fully. How do we know if we have the, the kind of life, the, the full life, the abundant life that Jesus is holding out for us? We can know what kind of life Jesus has if we see two things. First, where it starts, and second, where it ends. So look one more time at verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So there are two key little words in there. Really, not even the words. There are two key tenses that the words are in. When does life with Jesus start? Whoever has eternal life. And he or she has passed from death to life. Church, those are present tense words. Life in Christ is not something we do later. Life in Christ is something we have right now, and then it goes on forever and ever and never ends. And folks, the reverse goes for judgment. If you wonder, is the judgment for me, I can confidently, without any doubt or reservation, say that if you're in Christ, you've passed through judgment, and you're safe on the other side. You're safe on the other side in everlasting life with Jesus now if you're in Christ. That doesn't happen later for you. That's happened already if you're in Christ. Or if you come to him now, it happens right now and is yours forevermore. And that news, that hope, the peace, that will change every part of you. There there is not a cell in your body or a moment in your life Any aspect of your being that isn't touched by the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's how I want to apply this this Easter morning. I am well aware. I'm just, I'm a real, this was heavy on me this week that I can stand up here and I can talk about life in Jesus and, and resurrection and I can talk eternal life. But many of us, are going to walk out of here and and we're going right back into broken relationships, things we're anxious about, stress we have. Our problems aren't going away. We can put big signs that say life behind me. We can sing great songs. But we're still in real life. And so you might remember this morning later in the week, and I hope that gives you hope. But for some of us, it's going to feel like a million miles away, and it's only Wednesday. It's only Thursday. So what I want to do, just to apply this, is I want to give us two real ways to remember that the new life of Jesus is our life too right now for in him. And I hope when this feels a million miles away on Wednesday or Thursday, you'll remember at least these two things. Way number one is to remember that because of life in Jesus, every day we're one day closer 
to our resurrection and to heaven. You're one day closer to heaven every day. Even though our life is in Christ, we're going to have a lot of bad days, hard days. But even on the hardest, God has not moved even an inch farther away and we're yet closer to all that he has promised to give us. So we've been re-watching the Lord of the Rings series at our house. And it's made me realize that Sam Gamgee, Frodo's best friend, takes the ring into Mordor, into Mount Doom with Frodo. He's the real hero of the story. Sam is loyal, selfless, unfailingly hopeful, except for one time. There's this one part, I'm sorry to say it's not in the movies, it's just in the books, uh, where Sam can't sleep. He's looking out over Mordor, the, the, the evil country that they need to cross, and he's thinking about how far away it is and, and how far they have to go and, and how hard it's going to be, and, and he's just beginning to lose hope. And then he looks up in the sky and he sees a star. And listen to what Tolkien wrote. The beauty of it, the star smote Sam's heart and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that this shadow was only a small, the shadow is just all the evil in the world and and all that, was only a small and passing thing. There was still light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now, For a moment, his own fate and even Frodo's ceased to trouble him. And putting away all fear, he fell into a deep, untroubled sleep. I love that picture. Even in the darkest of times, we can look up. Sam saw this star. Even in the darkest of times, you can look up and you can see the resurrection of Christ. And you can remember that you have passed from life to death. And I hope that even in the midst of darkness, that will shine like a light, like a shaft down through the darkness. And you will find hope and you will find courage in that one sweet promise. You are one day closer to all that God has promised to give you. Way number two, that the life of Jesus matters, is is that it transfers our hope from ourselves to Jesus. So before we believe in Jesus, it's, it's not that we believe in nothing. You, you don't just believe in nothing and then believe in Jesus. Everybody in the world believes in something. And most often, it's ourselves. And the problem is we're in no position to bear the weight of our own hope. If our hope's in the God of the Bible, we, we have all sorts of certainty to rely on. So when things don't go your way, if your hope's in God, when things don't go your way, you can trust that the sovereign God has other plans for you. When we're confused, you can take great comfort in knowing that God knows everything and he has promised to reveal to us that which we need to know for our good. But there are some things he's just going to reserve for himself, but it's okay because he is all-knowing and he'll work it out. But without Jesus... Because it's up to us. Our failures, our insecurities, our fears, they're just all on us on our own. We can't bear the weight of that. If if you fail, you failed. You've got nothing to push that back on. You've got no place to put, you've got no hope. 
If you're confused, you wonder, well, how am I ever going to solve this? All I've got is this little mind, and it's not very sharp, and I get it wrong a lot. But when our life is in Christ with God, he is our hope, and he is our peace, and he is our rest. And so even when we don't know, we can trust in him. Even when we're unsure, we can be confident that he is working in things for our good. So we can rest. We can have that peace. We can have that Sabbath in him. You know, when, when somebody is not a Christian and they hear a believer say that they know Jesus, or say that they have a, a personal relationship with Jesus, often their response is to say, you know, something like, oh, you must think you're pretty great, you know, to know Jesus like that. Like, oh, you must think you're really special. And as Christians, here's what we should say. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, you have it entirely wrong. I believe in Jesus because I know that apart from him, I'm nothing good at all. In fact, I'm actually less than that. I'm dead apart from him. So is everybody. But the incredible invitation of Jesus is, is that anyone can pass from death to life through him. To do that, you believe that he's the holy son of God, that he died on the cross to take the punishment of your sin, and he was raised to new life on the third day, and he can give you new life with him. What you believe about Jesus decides your destiny. Either you believe him and honor him and live, or you reject him and die. That's the judgment. It's not your righteousness versus my righteousness. It's not your righteousness versus somebody less good's righteousness. It's God's holiness and you on your own with your sin, or it's God's holiness and the atoning work of Jesus. So that when God says, I want to talk with you about your sin, Jesus says, Stand aside, brother or sister. I'll take your place. Believe that. Believe in him and have life. Let's pray. God, thank you for new life in Jesus. Thank you for hope in him. May all that we are be to his glory because he gave all that he is to bring us that we may pass through judgment from death to eternal life. I pray for the Christians in the room that we are given courage and strength through that. And I pray for anybody who does not know this assurance that you would speak softly and sweetly to them, that they would go to another Christian that they trust and that they would ask how they too might be given life. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at os.org.